Good morning. Um, I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and i uh, just excited. I always love getting to preach during the Christmas season. So excited to preach from Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 9 this morning. And so you can go ahead and turn there. We'll read the rest of that text uh, in just a few moments. But I love Christmas music. Like, Love it. Like, October 1st is a great day to start Christmas music. At least it used to be. Now, if we started it that early, then our kids would be asking about the countdown to Christmas every day for way, way too long. So we've had to kind of shift that back a little bit. But I love Christmas music. But there's a few that kind of grate against me. I'm sure you have, you have your uh, songs, maybe all of it. Um, I don't know. But um, I find a couple just particularly ridiculous, especially after having kids. Um, one, away in a manger. Um, the second verse in that song says, The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I mean, come on. Like, anyone that's had kids or been around an infant knows, like, that's not what happened that night. All right? Um, and, and don't get me started on Silent Night. Uh, quiet is just not how, like, that whole birthing process works. All right? So it was not a peaceful night in the sense of, like, quiet and silence. And, and I think in so many ways we have songs like that because Christmas season is often this kind of trite, sentimental version of peace. Like Christmas, in many ways, can just become a distraction to give us the feeling of peace, like this warm, fuzzy, like silence or just quiet. And for many of us, maybe that's what turns us off about Christmas, that it's just this kind of forced veneer of peace in a chaotic world or in the midst of chaotic family gatherings. Yet the idea of peace, the candle we just lit today, the idea of peace is central to Christmas, but we're talking about something much more substantial. We're talking about this word that, that Scripture uses um, in the original language called shalom, talked about this some recently, and this idea of shalom is the word that we translate peace, but when we think of peace, we think of it oftentimes like, you know, silence, like in a way in a manger, but rather when, when scripture talks about shalom, it's talking about reconciliation and wholeness, restoration, justice, a complete peace, like a, like a peace of relationship, a peace of of a restoration of our relationship with God and, and a restoration of what the world is really supposed to be like as God originally created it when he said it was good and it was very good. And we so long for that kind of peace. But why is it seemingly this hopeless pursuit? And year after year, we just, we try to move things forward and we see how it fails. Like whether it's politically or whether it's in our own personal lives or whether it's in you know, some sphere of work or whatever it may be, it just seems like peace is just this never-ending like carrot that we're just running after. Why can we never seem to find it? I want to read, starting in Isaiah, actually chapter 10, the last couple verses there, starting in verse 33. And I want to read through verse 9 again, just so we have the whole context of where we're going today. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height, the arrogant, will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, though, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and, with, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. This is that picture of shalom that we just talked about. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask as we, we hear your word this morning that you give us ears to hear. God, that you would fill us with your spirit. God, we're thankful that um, as we came to this place this morning, you were already here. You already work in us and, and through us before we came into this place this morning. We pray that we would uh, just be prepared to receive now what you would have for us. God, make us more like Jesus. Lead us to, to find true peace, whole peace, and shalom in our lives, and to, to be a part of, of bringing that shalom into reality here in your wor- world for your glory and our good. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why can't we seem to find this kind of peace that we read about in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9? Why does it seem like such a hopeless pursuit? It's because, quite simply, we hope in the wrong kings. We hope in the wrong kings. See, we were supposed to be the rulers of of this world. We were supposed to be the ones that have dominion. That was the mandate to us in Genesis chapter 2, or 1 and 2, that we would go forth and have dominion, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the world. Certainly, under God's authority as the ultimate king, but we were called to be um, what's often called vice regents, right? Kind of the um, vice kings under the true king, and yet we have royally failed. We've attempted to be kings on our own apart from the ultimate rule and reign of God. He gave us this stewardship and this responsibility over this world, and we have wrecked it. A prideful trust in ourselves has wrecked peace time and time again. We see it all throughout Scripture. In the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, rather than submitting to the true king as they were tending to the garden, they they chose to be kings of their own lives right? And, and take control and take of that fruit. The one thing that God put limits on in this world that they were called to rule, they chose to take and eat, and be kings of their own life. And as a result, their relationship with God was broken. Our relationship, like all the the effects we feel today of broken peace, broken shalom, is because of that first sin, that taking on of kingship for ourselves. That's what sin is. And so we wrecked peace, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, their relationship with the earth, and, and, and the work that they were called to do. It was all wrecked as a result of their prideful taking of the crown for themselves. 
And we see this time and again. We see it in, in the promised land. As God's people enter in, in the book of Judges, we see over and over again this phrase that, um, that, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land. Everyone was their own king. And as a result, I don't know if you've read the book of Judges, but the book of Judges is one of the most like crazy, heinous books there is because it's just how time and again God brings a judge in to help right the people of God, and they're faithful for a little while, but then they continue to revert back to just doing what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, peace was wrecked time and again. In First and Second Samuel, the, the people of God finally say, well, okay, we, what we need is a, a king. We need a king like the rest of the nations in order to kind of get things on track, to not have this cycle all the time of, of doing what's right in our own eyes. We need to have a king like the rest of the nations. Well, they get one like the rest of the nations rather than a king like God would have for them to have. And as a result, they choose based on outward appearance and strength and once again, pride wrecks everything. The first king of Israel named Saul like, just makes a mess of it very quickly. And then we go on to see the rest of the kings throughout that history and over and over again. Like, even as, as you see some faithful kings, even in their faithfulness, you see how their pride ultimately ends up leading them to failure. And then when we get to the book of Isaiah where he's prophesying in this day. And we see that there's, there's these nations that the kings of Israel and Judah are, are reaching out to trust in because they're, they're trying to find ways to protect their people. And, and so they're trusting in the kings of Assyria. Or later in the book of Isaiah, they, they seek to trust in Babylon in order to protect themselves against Assyria. And as a result, because they don't trust in the Lord, rather they trust in what they can do in their own sufficiency or in the sufficiency of other human beings, they end up having their peace utterly wrecked. And that's what we see happening in verses 33 to 34. God is calling out and clarifying what he's going to do to bring judgment upon those that have been arrogant in allowing their pride to wreck his purposes in the world. He says, the Lord God hosts the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height, or in other words, the arrogant, will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He's talking about both Assyria and as well as his people. Those who choose pride will be judged for it. And we do this in our present day. Think about it. We just so, as human beings, have this hope and drive to find the one person who has it all figured out that in a world of chaos, we're searching for this kind of silver bullet solution, some savior that can come in and help us. Like We may not think of it as a savior, but that's what we're looking for. If, if you're into sports at all, like this is what happens with sports teams over and over again. Like I don't know if you've seen the carousel of coaches that have been fired this season, but these college football teams just killing their coaches in the middle of the season because like they're they're just not living up to par. Like there's this hope that hey, if we can just find the right guy, we'll get it all back on track and he'll he'll do it like that. And we do this though on a much more serious level politically. Right? We're just like, we place our hope in this one single leader. If we can get the right person in the White House, if we can get the right people in the Senate, like if we can get the right people there, then suddenly our, our country is going to get back on track, whatever that means. 
We do this in churches. I work amongst all kinds of churches throughout our state, and, and I see it time and time again how many of them say, well, look, if we could just get like a new young pastor, then we'll finally be able to reach young families. Like, if we can just get a new pastor that preaches this way or a new pastor that can lead us to do this or that, and, and there's a solution, there's this hope that, that rests on some human leader. But we don't just do it organizationally. We also do it in our own hearts our own individual lives. We hope in the wrong kings, whether it's some outside king or it's ourselves. We hope in merely human kings, and as a result, our pride wrecks our peace. And we see this, and we'll see how this contrasts with the true king in a moment. But we see our pride wrecking our peace in a few ways. One, in self-sufficiency. Our pride manifests in self-sufficiency. If I, can just, if I can just optimize myself, like if I can just kind of like get all the right productivity tools or if I can get like all the like plans put into place, if I can just control like what's going on around me and figure out how to best manage relationships and manage what I've got to do, then, um, then, then I can overcome all of the craziness that is surrounding me and I can somehow kind of just quiet things and, and make it all work. We can just find the right president or we can find the right pastor or find the right personal coach. We have this idea that as human beings, we can be self-sufficient. Whether we think that way, like we're not thinking that way, like as Christians in particular, right? Like we're not like, oh, I'm self-sufficient. We know the right Sunday school answer is that God is the sufficient one. And yet too often we operate in this way, in this sense that like if we can just optimize ourselves then we'll be able to bring about the good. We'll be able to, to have the good life. But we simply aren't sufficient. None of us are. Our pride also manifests in another way, in self-righteousness. Right? That's what was happening in the book of Judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Protagoras, an ancient philosopher, said, man is the measure of all things. But we make a terrible measure of what's right and wrong. As truth becomes relative, our society fractures at its foundation. Whether it's, it's crumbling from like a hyper-individualism that, that every, everybody's kind of got their own right way of doing things, or it, it, the foundations shake because we're just we're controlled by the whims of kind of this majority populism. Stability is lost as a result of that. When man is the measure of all things... We simply aren't a stable measure or judge of what is good and what is right, of how to get to the good life and how to get to that shalom. And it's in part because not only do we, we get caught up in self-sufficiency and self-righteousness, but we also buy in to self-centeredness. And we prioritize my personal peace, my personal honor, my personal comfort over others. And how often do we change our positions or our plans based on what serves us or what's expedient for us rather than what is right and best? And so even in all of our self-righteousness, we end up getting swayed like the wind. And we're not faithful because we end up, the number one person we're faithful to is ourselves. And as a result, pride not only wrecks our own personal peace, but it wrecks the peace of those around us. Look, we innately and rightly know that if we can just find the right leader, then peace can be restored. 
The problem is, is we search for it in all the wrong places. We search for it in ourselves, and we search for it in other merely human leaders. We hope in the wrong kings. And so where then do we find and enjoy true peace? Like, where can it possibly be found? And this is what Isaiah is pointing us to. In, in, a, in a time in the book of Isaiah where, where peace is gone for Judah because the, the, the king of Israel has just changed. Uzziah had been there, provided really a great stability for the people for quite some time. He was one of the longest reigning kings in their history. And so that's all upended. And he's pointing to the fact that, yeah, it's going to actually get crazier. And then he drives them in verse 11 to where their hope for peace is. And this is the big idea of chapter 11. See, we're called to pursue the presence of the perfect king. If we want that peace that we long for in our hearts, if we want the peace, the shalom that we're talking about here, we've got to pursue the presence of the perfect king. Who is that perfect king? Well, in verse 1 and then in verse 10, we, we read about the shoot of Jesse in verse 1. Right? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then in verse 10, which we, hadn't re- we haven't read yet, it says, And in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This idea is both that, that from Jesse, who is the, the, the father of David, King David, um, who is um, one of the, the great kings of Israel, um, and, and of which God made a promise that he would one day bring the Messiah through um, David's line. And so Jesse, um, it's saying, hey, the, the, the shoot coming from Jesse. So one will come from his line that will be like what we read in, ver- in chapter 11. But then in verse 10, it says that the root of Jesse, so both something coming from Jesse, and, and this, this king is both coming from him, all right, but he's also come before him. How does that work? Well, it works because Jesus is the promised king, and he does by taking on human nature. What we're talking about at Christmas time, the incarnation, like he comes and he, he is literally descended from Jesse physically as in his human nature. And yet he goes before Jesse, and he is the root of Jesse because he is also God himself, the eternal God, who existed before all of creation, who created all things. And so Jesus, he's who we celebrate. He is the perfect king, and it's his presence that we're called to pursue in this passage. Christmas and Advent is is about celebrating that Jesus has come and that he's coming again, that this perfect king has come in the first place that we read about in Isaiah 11, and that he's one day coming again to finalize that shalom that we're we're longing for. And, And yet we can, in this moment, pursue the presence of that perfect king In the midst of the darkness of all of our failed reigns, Jesus came 2,000 years ago bringing light through his righteous reign. God sent the one man, Jesus, to rule and to lead in all the ways that we have fallen short in order to bring peace and shalom back to God's creation. And so in a world of failed leaders who've dashed our hopes, where we've dashed our own hopes and peace, Jesus is the king worth following. He's worthy of our trust. And in verses 2 through 5, that's what we see. We see why he is worthy of our trust. We see the king's perfection. 
First off in verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We see the, the first aspect of this perfect king in his perfect sufficiency. Though we try to be self-sufficient on our own, he actually is self-sufficient. And we see it in that he finds his sufficiency in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. The fullness of the Spirit of God will rest on this king. He will have all the wisdom and understanding and counsel and knowledge and might that a leader could possibly need in order to actually bring about shalom. He has all the resources he needs to make it happen. And as we'll see teased out further in verses 3 through 4, it's all constrained. All of that, that wisdom and omniscience and, and all all power that he has, it's constrained by the fear of the Lord, right? At the end of verse 2, it says, The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And so rather than fearing man, which is what so often leads us to destructive ways, right? We, we fear what other people will think. We, we want to we please others. Jesus is not driven by that. And so in all his might and all his wisdom, he uses it to do what God would have him to do rather than what we would have him to do. And that's good news. And so where does that sufficiency come from, though, for him? We read about it here, that he has all these things, but what's that look like? When Jesus shows up on the scene that first Christmas, he's 100% man, and he's 100% God. And that's the true miracle of the incarnation. That's the true miracle of Christmas. Bruce Ware, a theologian, describes the incarnation this way, because I think, man, it is so hard to wrap our minds around, like, what did this look like? Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, and I think the way Ware talks about it here is really helpful. Jesus, as God himself, possessed all the attributes of God. He's 100% God. Yet, in his humanity, he chose not to express the rights and power of his deity. And so he possessed it all. 100% God, and yet in his humanity, he chose not to express the rights and power of his deity. And so he possessed all the sufficiency in and of himself, and yet he didn't live out of that possession. Rather, he took on the form of a servant, he humbled himself, and he, and he chose not to express those rights and power. And as God, though he was, humble, though he was totally sufficient in himself, he chose to humbly rely on the Spirit of God, to be to have the Spirit of the Lord rest upon him, to rely on the Spirit's wisdom and counsel and might. And by doing so, he points us to the ultimate hope, that the ultimate hope is God's presence with us, that, that returning to that, that dwelling with God moment by moment is our, our true hope for sufficiency because he is the all-sufficient one. And he gave us this example to follow in order to find shalom, that we would have this moment-by-moment -moment reliance on God's Spirit. We see this in, in Jesus' baptism and then in his, in his going into the wilderness. We see this fulfilled, that the Spirit of the Lord would come and rest upon him. All right? When Jesus is baptized, he's, he's put down in the water by John the Baptist. He comes out and the Father says, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of the Lord like, there's this picture, this visible picture of the, the Spirit of the Lord coming to rest upon him, showing that he is the one. He is the anointed one 
that is going to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, being sufficient, not in his humanity, being sufficient in the fact that he's walking by the Spirit and that he is God himself. See, Jesus is the perfectly sufficient king. And unlike other leaders, he never lacks exactly what we need. Because not only is he God himself, but he walks fully by the power of the Spirit throughout his entire life. And he enters into that wilderness temptation, relying not on his own power to overcome it, but relying on the power of the Spirit and modeling for us what it looks like to live this life in this world. And so he never lacks exactly what we need, whether it's wisdom or strength, and he graciously offers all of that to us. He is the perfectly sufficient king. But he's also perfectly righteous. He's perfectly righteous. In verses 3 and 4, we read that he, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor with, with what is true and right objectively, knowing all he's able to judge with perfect equity, able to judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and then to mete out punishment, right? And then he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. Only then, out of perfect righteousness, guided by the fear of God, not by a fear of man, not worried about what others think, not worried about their status or what they can give to him into return, but he judges with fairness, absolute equity. Unlike our political leaders, church leaders, and ourselves, to one degree or another, who bend the truth and exhibit bias of all kinds, Jesus does not favor one people over another. His judgment and actions are perfectly just. He doesn't succumb to peer pressure, but rather he submits his judgments to him who knows all. We see this in the life of Jesus, that he fulfills this perfectly. He speaks out against the elite of his day, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees speaks out against all of those, not giving any credence to the, the rich or the powerful. And yet, he doesn't give the poor or the oppressed a special pass just because of their low status in society either. He calls all to repentance, and he offers all his amazing grace. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly sufficient. But he's not only those things, he is also perfectly faithful. Because see, if, if he was all those things, and he wasn't also perfectly faithful, then how could we count on him to bring about true and stable peace? Because faithfulness is this unchangingness, right? In verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He is the unchanging one. He does not allow what's expedient or self-serving to guide him like you or I. And unlike us in our self-centeredness, Jesus isn't moved by the whims of desires for personal comfort or being liked. But he is faithful and true to the, his character and God's will in every moment of his life. And think about this in that, in that wilderness experience. He goes out there led by the Spirit into those temptations. He goes into those temptations and is tempted by Satan with, with really three things. To be sufficient on his own, to, to make these stones bread and, and, and to meet his own needs. He says, no, I, like, 
This word is my bread. This word is my sufficiency. God is my sufficiency, he's reminding himself. He's tempted with comfort and he's tempted with power in those last two temptations from the evil one. Jesus is tempted with all these things and yet he remains faithful and true. In fact, that's one of his names that he's called in the book of Revelation. Like he is the faithful and true one. And so we can count on him in his self-sufficiency and in his righteousness to be steady in those things. Not to have ups and downs, but to be perfectly true in all situations. And so because of who he is, his perfection, his whole and total perfection, we can count on him to accomplish what he says he will do. And verses 6 through 9 is that picture of what this king will accomplish. Of what he came for at that very first Advent Christmas morning. And what he will come to establish once and for all when he returns and makes all things new. We can count on him that he will bring his peace. Total shalom. Verses 6 through 9, that's what we see. That he's restoring creation. That his promises and plans are perfect. That he is going to turn the world upside down in his rule and reign. It's a return to the garden, the very beginning, when God dwelt with his people in perfection, but even better than that. But even better. It's shalom that like no human being has ever experienced. And we see just Isaiah teasing out what that'll look like with these incredible pictures. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Like, like all of these things that were at each other's throats suddenly are not. Like they're walking together and a little child is, is leading them. It's this image and this picture of old enemies being reconciled. It's the good news that like Cardinals fans and Cub fans can one day coexist. That, that Democrats and Republicans can coexist, that, that we, can, we can see those, the oldest and deepest of enemies will be reconciled to one another. Like Jesus will bring peace together from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. There's a story of a church I got to work with in southeast Missouri in, in a town called Sykeston. Uh, it's a church now called Grace Bible Fellowship. Sykeston's a place where literally um, segregation still exists, not necessarily um, formally in the school, but, but when you sit there at basketball games, which is a big deal um, there, um, there is um, a section that's clearly um, almost 100% black and the other section's almost 100% white. There, is, there are two sides of the tracks in Sykeston, Missouri. And in Sykeston, Missouri, there's um, two churches. One, a historically um, Anglo-Southern Baptist conservative church um, merged with a, a former United Methodist church. Yet they were conservative in theology. And, and they merged together. Historically, African-American churches from two different sides of the tracks in Sykeston came together. Not because like any of those people there were special, but I can truly tell you it's because of their mutual love for Jesus Christ that brought them together. And God is doing incredible things to minister in that community, in a community that is still very much segregated, where racism is alive and well in very tangible, visible ways, at basketball games even. God brought together people that otherwise would never have come together. 
This is the kind of shalom that Jesus brings. In a hopelessly divided world, Jesus can bring together people who are sharply divided. Old enemies will be reconciled. But then we also see that old natures will be transformed. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the, cow and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, this is not what the lion and the bear are meant to do. Like That's not part of their nature at this point in time. But their natures, Isaiah is saying, their entire nature will be transformed. That's like me suddenly stop to stop liking pizza. Like, like pizza night is a staple at our house at least two times a week almost. Um, and uh, it's because I love pizza so much, not because my wife isn't an amazing cook. But um, it's like that, but so much better, that our desires will be transformed. In his New Testament letter, James points out this. He, he points out how our disordered desires are really at the, the root of what causes quarrels and fights among us. It's our, our desires that point towards self, that are oriented towards self, that ultimately that wrecks that peace that we're talking about today. We need transformation for peace to be possible. And this king, King Jesus, brings that about. He brings that about by the life, death, and resurrection that, that he lived out. For us, He makes that way. And so he makes old enemies reconciled. He makes old natures transformed. And then in verse 8, we see old curses upended. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This isn't just about the fact that we won't have to worry about like snakes in the backyard anymore, although I praise God for that day one day because I, man, I hate snakes. Uh, and I think it's kind of biblical, right? Like in the garden, like the snake was the form that Satan took on. Um, and so, um, but I don't want to have to worry about snakes in the backyard, especially with little kids running around. But um, honestly, I'm probably more scared than they are of snakes, okay? Um, but, but that's not the point of this image here, all right? The point of this is drawing our minds back to that, that picture in the garden where, where the evil one came in the form of a snake. And he tempted and led people away from the righteous rule and reign of God and the peace that God had for them. And he's saying that, that Jesus will once and for all be victorious over that enemy. The greatest threat to humanity, humanity will finally be powerless. And though we fail to overcome him day in, day out, Jesus wins. He wins by dying the death on the cross that we deserve. He overcame Satan then, and then he proved it, and he overcame him once again, and he overcame death when he rose from the dead three days later. Like, Satan is defeated, and one day he will be completely eradicated. And so we see old enemies reconciled, old natures transformed, old curses upended, and then finally we see old intentions restored. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, verse 9 says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's this idea, I mean, this waters cover the sea is, I mean, it's like, that is the very definition of a sea, right? Is water, okay? And so it's this picture that, that the knowledge of the Lord, and knowledge in the Old Testament is, is not just like uh, facts that we know, okay? Knowledge is this relational like presence with one another. Like that's, how, that's what knowledge is. And so when he's talking about the knowledge of the Lord, he's, he's talking about the, the fact that God's presence will, be, will so saturate everything 
that we will walk in a knowledge of him every moment of every day. The presence of God will be everywhere. And as a result, that's what brings about peace. God will be back with us. We're doing this Advent devotional together as a family. And um, every day at the, the end, um, it, it's kind of a, the, this kid's thing. And so it repeats the same thing at the end every day. Um, the people are always praying um, after each Bible story. And God, will you come back with us to stay and that's, that's the whole idea from, from the garden to the end of the book of Revelation is this, um, this intention that God has to be with his people in his place, to be present with us from beginning to end of scripture. It's what we long for in our hearts. It's why we long for a king to bring back peace. And yet we look for it in all the wrong places because God intends to be that king. And it's only God himself in Jesus Christ that we can have that peace. We see from beginning to end of Scripture of God working to bring his presence, like it was in Genesis 1 and 2, back to what it was at the end of the book of Revelation, to restore his presence with his people. Ultimately, everything that wrecks our peace is overcome by this perfect King Jesus, because as the perfectly sufficient, righteous, and faithful King, he lived, died, and rose again to bring us back to the peaceful presence of God, to reconcile us to him, to transform us so we could live rightly under his reign and to upend the evil one and put him to shame. And so if we want to find peace this Christmas season, a peace that lasts far beyond a season or an age of history, then we have to stop pursuing the wrong kings in ourselves or in other merely human kings. We must pursue the presence of the perfect king now. And so no matter what the threat to your peace is, whether it's, it's relational or, or internal or external, that you know, there's the, the relational peace that needs reconciliation with other people. There's the internal peace that's our own desires that are causing us a lack of peace. Or there's the external fact that, that Satan is attacking us with suffering and temptations of all kinds. So no matter what the threat is to your peace that you're wrestling with right now in this season, Jesus is offering you shalom. He's offering you shalom in the here and the now. And no, it won't be perfect, but you can experience the the foretaste of that perfect shalom if you pursue the king's presence. Pursue the king's presence. That's the call of this passage. Isaiah paints this incredible picture of our future king in Jesus, of our true and perfect king in Jesus. And then he paints a picture of the peace that we can have in his presence as the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea, we can experience that in the here and now. We've got to allow, though, our lives to be saturated in the knowledge, that relational knowledge of the Lord. Jesus, in John chapter 15, draws on this imagery that that Isaiah uses in in verse 1 and verse 10, this this branch, this shoot imagery, this this picture of a tree and this connectedness. In John chapter 15, Jesus um, talks about this idea, and maybe you've heard about it before, of of abiding in him. This is what what it looks like to be pursuing the king's presence. He's hammering this home by drawing on this picture of this text. And so I just want to read a portion of John chapter 15. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that text, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Again, unless we're connected to that shoot that Isaiah is talking about, unless we're connected to the perfect king ourselves, unless we're abiding in him, you cannot bear fruit. Neither can we unless we abide in Jesus. In verse 5, it says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So often I pursue peace in a way that's, um, that's really not in line with this idea of abiding. I think for so long, I was sharing with uh, so salt students, you may recognize this because it's something God's been teaching me deeply lately. And I was sharing with the salt students a few weeks back about this idea that I had so often thought of abiding with Jesus as just like my morning quiet time or my time like once a week Sunday as I gather. Um, and it was almost like, okay, I'm like this electric car that needs to hook up to the, um, the charging station and you get charged up and, and so that I can go about throughout the rest of my week. So I need to come abide in Jesus, all right, in these moments once a day and once a week so that then I can just kind of go out and, 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 and be fueled up for all the things I need to do for Jesus. Then you get fueled up by Jesus so I can do things for Jesus. What Jesus calls us to when he says abide, what it means to be saturated in the presence of God as, as the waters cover the sea is not to just charge up in one moment, but rather it's to be like a tree, like what a branch staying connected all the time. I don't know what you see, if you've seen what happens when like leaves get disconnected from the tree or when branches get disconnected, but they die, right? They die. They don't stay alive. Like you don't reconnect them. I don't know, maybe there's some biologist that knows how to do that, but I can't reconnect it, all right? You and I, we can't, re like, we get disconnected from Jesus, like, we, we shrivel up. We shrivel up. We've got to abide in his presence moment by moment. We've got to follow in the steps of Jesus himself, who, though he was in the form of God, he took on human nature and he decided he would be sufficient, not in his own power, but in the power of the Spirit. He lived a life of abiding in God by relying on the Spirit. He went out into the wilderness into that temptation because the Spirit led him there. And he overcame that temptation because the Spirit upheld him. And so how do we abide? What's that really practically look like? What does it look like to pursue the presence of the King so that we can experience this peace? Well, first off, it, it means to pause. We've got to pause. We've got to pause. In a world that knows nothing about pausing, Right? And we don't even have ads in our TV shows anymore, right? Like, the world knows nothing about pausing anymore. It pushes against the very grain of our culture. But this is the first step in abiding. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Be still and know that I am God. We often, so often run around trying to make much of God and do things for God. And yet he's saying, no, be still. I will be exalted. Like, he doesn't need us. He invites us to be a part of his work, a part of that exaltation. He doesn't need us, though. And so he's saying, be still. Recognize it's not all on you. Like accomplishing this peace in shalom, it, it doesn't rise and fall on us. It rises and falls on King Jesus. And so be still. And remember that he is God. Yes, it pushes against the very grain of our culture. And yet, science has also recognized the benefits of meditation, right? Of, of stopping and being still. And, and, 
It's because the way that God has wired us as human beings. But meditation from a scriptural perspective isn't an emptying of our minds, of all of our thoughts, in order to kind of push out all of the things that would stress us out or cause us to lose peace. But instead, it's a, it's a focusing, it's a reorienting of our thoughts and our minds on Jesus and on God. Look, we have to become comfortable and even pursue silence and stillness in our lives. Or we will never know what it's like to walk moment by moment in the presence of the King. We won't experience the fullness of the shalom that he offers to us in this life. We can experience that now, at least in part, but we've got to first pause. And then we've got to pray. We've got to pray. We've got to respond in that, that pausing. We've got to then respond to God with, a, a, I believe, one of the key things is what we see in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're saying when we're praying for God's kingdom to come is for God as king, like to make his peaceful presence known in this world to manifest it, and to transform us and our world around us. That's what we're praying when we're praying our kingdom come. God, let your shalom come. Transform me. Make me a peaceful presence and, and bring that shalom out into the world through us and for your glory. And so we pause and we pray that his kingdom would come. And we've got to practice that. Regular, intentional pausing and praying until every moment of every day is lived in his presence. Where we're living out that 1 Thessalonians 5 kind of thing where it says, pray without ceasing, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. It sounds crazy to us, but that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul was calling to us, calling us to there. We've got to practice regular, intentional pausing and praying a regular intentional time to reorient ourselves. And so I just encourage you, in order to really pause and pray like this, it can't just be a time in the morning, it can't just be time on um, uh, Sunday mornings, but rather we've got to make habits, we've got to find ways to build time in our days. And so I'd encourage you, like, find some times just to set alarms in your phone that would go off throughout your day. All right, just start with like one or two. Or maybe like the historic church having like a, a kind of a morning prayer, a, a midday prayer, and an afternoon prayer. I've started setting one for nine, noon, and three. They just stop me. So in the midst of the flow of everything else and the chaos of the workday or, or time with family, that I would just have to stop. And sometimes I struggle to actually stop, all right? I'll just have to admit it. But, but it's worth it every time I stop to reorient myself. And I encourage you to do that in order to start this habit of pausing and praying. Look, I love Christmas. Like, I really love it. Like, I'm like... I'm like kind of a little Clark Griswoldish, all right? Um, but, but Christmas can easily become simply a way we distract ourselves to death, like so much else in our culture. Pausing, praying, and moment by moment practicing the presence of the king is truly countercultural. It rubs against the very grain of American life that's just go, 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 distraction, distraction, distraction. But pausing and praying and practicing the presence of God is totally worth it. And so this Christmas season, find true peace in pursuing the presence of the perfect king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus and the fact that you are perfect, that you are all sufficient, that you are perfectly righteous, and that you are faithful to those things moment by moment throughout all of eternity. God, I pray today that, that we would begin to know your peace by by living in your presence moment by moment.
that we would experience it in such a way, um, Lord, that we would, would begin to experience shalom and, and just the, uh, the peace that we can then take out into the world so the world can see how good and perfect and peaceful you truly are. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, and I pray all this in his name. Amen.